0: All right, no preface today. We have to jump right in because we have a ton of stuff to cover. Um, To start, this is the first major move that we've made in our philosophical class so far um, between two major periods in philosophical history. Um, Specifically, like, up until this point we've been dealing with Plato, we've been dealing with the Bible, we've been dealing with the Tao Te Ching. All of these are works of ancient philosophy. They date back thousands of years. Um... Plato and the Tao Te Ching were probably written at roughly the same time, around 400 to 300 BCE, although Plato was obviously writing in ancient Greece and Lao Tzu was obviously writing in ancient China. Um, The Exodus is a little bit more ambiguous. Um, I think I mentioned in the Uh, lecture on the subject last week that like there's some dispute about when exactly the exodus was written Um, but the latest date that people place it at is typically around 500 to 600 BCE so in either case it's really really old even older than Plato and Lao Tzu Um, so in any case all of these texts are ancient. Um, But by talking about Anselm and Aquinas, we are jumping forward in time a good solid 1,300 years and even 1,600 years in the case of Aquinas, Um, and we need to talk about that. In general, um, in this class so far, we haven't done a whole heck of a lot of overview as to like what exactly um, philosophy is all about and how exactly the history of philosophy actually works. Um, so I wanted to take a little bit of time at the outset here and sort of put everything in its place, like talk about the context, talk about how we get from ancient philosophy to medieval philosophy, um, talk about the different priorities of these different time periods because we're about to jump again in the next two weeks um, when we jump to Descartes and the modern philosophers, um, and just sort of like put the whole project as much as I can into the context of history. So, obviously, when we were talking about the ancient Greeks, we were specifically talking about ancient Greece. Um, The trouble is, like, everything changes right after Plato and Aristotle are writing. Um, Specifically, this is when Alexander the Great sweeps through the ancient Greek world. Um, and conquers it with the help of his father, Philip of Macedon, and then proceeds to spread the all of the ancient Greek writings, like Homer, like Hesiod, and like Plato and Aristotle, throughout all of the known world, and his great conquest across Persia. Um, the Greeks and the Persians had been at war once before, although they're... they're they were also allies at one point, or at least the Spartans were allies with the Persians at one point. Um, It's complicated. There's tons of weird political stuff going on in the ancient world, just like there's tons of weird political stuff going on now. Um, But importantly for our purposes, Alexander the Great took over all of Persia and brought ancient Greek with him. The ancient Greek writings, the ancient Greek philosophy, ancient Greek mathematics, ancient Greek science. Like everything the Greeks had done, he brought all over the world and suddenly everybody was reading it and everybody was studying it. And this, Philosophy went from being a niche thing in one city in one like uh, region in Greece to the dominant way of doing science for basically the entirety of the ancient world. And if anything, it just gets more influential and more important from here. Um, Shortly after Alexander the Great is sweeping through the ancient world and sort of sets up his dynasty and builds all of his Alexandria cities and one named after his horse. The Romans basically end up doing basically the same thing. Um, Ancient Rome spreads and grows and conquers ancient Greece and conquers basically the entire Mediterranean world and builds what is probably the most, like, important and powerful empire of the ancient world, uh, with the possible exception of ancient China, which is very much doing its own thing at this point and there is very little contact between the west and the east um, at this stage of the game. Um, But, One of the things that Rome does is they very much adopt the Greek philosophical school um, and it sort of fractures at this point into multiple different philosophical schools. Um, so there's an obvious succession between Socrates to Plato, like Plato was Socrates' student and continued his legacy, Plato to Aristotle. Aristotle was Plato's student and very much continued Plato's legacy, even though there was a lot that they disagreed about, and they sort of have these very different perspectives on what philosophy is supposed to do. Um, but after Aristotle dies, the Greek philosophy Greek philosophy sort of divides into multiple different schools. Um, Specifically, there are four that you tend to think about, like, in the ancient world at this time. On the one hand, you have the cynics. Um, and the cynics were just what they sounded like, cynical. Um, they be- they were, like, proto-nihilists in their own way, although, you know, they did, did in fact believe in certain valuations, so I wouldn't call them hard nihilists. Um, the most famous of the cynics is Diogenes the Cynic, who famously went around naked and lived in a bathtub and apparently did, in fact, wear a barrel. Like, that's where that whole, like trope got started is diogenes the cynic walking around in a barrel um he said that it is said that he didn't own any property that like all he owned was a cloak and a bowl and at one point he like went to the river to get water and he realized that he could cut the water into his hands so he threw his bowl away because he didn't need it anymore um and diogenes was basically acting much the same way as socrates was in the apology he was basically just Obnoxious and going around and asking questions and basically pointing out all of the hypocrisy evident in Athenian society at the time. Um, He was dirty and he was unclean and he didn't give a shit about it and he expected you to basically not give a shit about it either. Um, There are stories, though I suspect that they are apocryphal, um, that he would have philosophical dialogues with people like Plato um, and would conclude the argument by taking a shit in this person's house and then walking out, like just taking a dump on the floor because that's how Diogenes rolls. Um, So Diogenes' whole approach to philosophy and sort of the cynic approach to philosophy as unpopular as it turned out to be because you know not many people want to give up all their stuff and take dumps on people's floor um, their whole approach is very much taking the Socratic idea of like questioning and skepticism and and questioning, like, other people's philosophical ideas and pointing out hypocrisy where you find them. Um, but the cynics didn't really do anything with it. There was no system that they built out of it. It was mostly just being the, being trolls in Athenian and early Greek, or ancient Greek and ancient Roman society. Um, so they didn't make too much of an impression, and we won't see very much of them uh, at all in like future philosophical di- discourse, um, except sort of as references like to how outlandish it was. Um, but the next school did have a huge influence, namely the Epicureans. Um, the Epicureans basically took away a lot of what Aristotle is talking about in the Nicomachean Ethics, and a lot of the sort of talk about the good life and happiness in um, the Socratic dialogues, and had sort of put together a school of thought that basically equated happiness and pleasure with wisdom and accomplishment. Um, Now, the critics of the Epicureans said that the Epicureans were hedonists, Um, And hedonists were people who just lived for pleasure. Like, all they wanted was the next big high. And you can usually imagine hedonists, like, sitting around and getting drunk all the time and having sex all the time. Um, If For those of you who are Futurama fans, hedonism bot is the guy who's, like, reclined on the couch permanently with, like, people handing him grapes all the time. Um, That's usually how you imagine hedonism to work. Like, it is purely about pleasure and nothing higher. Um, But the Epicureans very much chafed against that. That was not the way that they saw themselves. Yes, they sought out pleasure, but pleasure in the sense of a higher pleasure, pleasure through wisdom, pleasure through philosophical reflection, um, pleasure through accomplishment and ambition. Um, They were not just hedonists, as much as, you know, other schools of thought tended to criticize them for it. Um, But the school that was especially keen to criticize them was sort of their polar opposite, the Stoics. Um, and Stoicism was probably the single most important of these philosophical schools, especially during the Roman Empire. The Romans themselves had sort of modeled their society in a way kind of after the Spartans, who were very militaristic and very rigorous and very like powerful, um, but they had achieved that power through self denial and self discipline. Um, the individual desires were completely subordinated to the will of the community, and the Romans admired that. They tried to adopt that same principle for themselves. Um, so, as a result, Stoicism was really popular among the Romans. Stoicism, like Buddhism, preaches self denial um, that the best way to happiness is to abstain from pleasure, things that make you like tentatively or feel happy um instead by removing your desire for these pleasures you will become more satisfied with the things that you already have and so like real stoics stoics like seneca would give up a lot of their property and take great pains to to sort of like work hard for the little bit of food and shelter that they had And the Romans admired this. Like This was part of what made the ideal Roman citizen in their mind. Um, So some of the great Roman philosophers, in fact most of the great Roman philosophers, were Stoics. Um, Seneca, Cicero, Marcus Aurelius was a Stoic, even though he was also emperor, and that sort of makes it a little weird. Um, Stoicism is also sort of at the foundation of a lot of what Christianity would become. Um, Like, Christianity preaches, you know, abstain from fornication, do not have sex with randos. Um, Many Christians in, like, early Christendom said that the priests should not be able to have sex, that they should be celibate. Um, And while this didn't 100% catch on in the Roman world, um, by the end of the medieval period, many monks were insisting on the same thing, and that's how you get the popes and the priests in the 11th century are mandated Um, that they are not allowed to have sex anymore. Like, up until this point, priests could marry, um, but after the 12th century, that was forbidden. Um, And you'll notice that, like, even Christian monasticism is based on Stoic principles, self-denial, even self-flagellation at some points. Um, Stoicism dovetailed really nicely with Christianity. Christianity is all about, like, giving up worldly things in favor of, you know, communion with spiritual things, God, um, heaven, Jesus... Um, and so the Stoics sort of caught on among the Christians, and the Christians very much admired the Stoics. Um, they're not the same. Like, let me stress, Stoicism saw itself as being like the harbinger of a you know completely secular philosophy, something based more in Plato's notion of the demiurge um, than the Christian notion of God. But nonetheless, the two had a lot of similarities in their ethics, and many prominent Christian scholars in the first and second century um, were also Stoics in their own right. There was a lot of crossover there. Uh, but the other major school that got a lot of traction at this point was the what are known as the Academics or the Skeptics. Um, see, when Plato sort of had was writing his dialogues, he had also established his own school, the Academy. Um, that's where he wrote over the door, know thyself. Um, as this sort of reminder of the most important philosophical principle, the thing that Socrates was most on about, like we talked about in the Euthyphro. But that school changed hands to Aristotle when Plato died, and when Aristotle died, it passed into the hands of the academics, the skeptics. Um, which is why they're called academics, from the word academy. Like, to this day, when we talk about academia, it is a reference to Plato's academy. He is considered, like, the forefather of the university system in that sense, Um, although the line of succession is not quite that obvious um, or direct. At any rate, the academic philosophy was like the term skeptic suggests, very skeptical. They very much adopted Socrates' principle of questioning others um, and went around doing the same thing. Unlike the cynics, they didn't do it with this additional sort of rudeness or complete lack of interest in personal goods. They were not out to demonstrate hypocrisy. Instead, they were primarily geared towards having civilized philosophical arguments with other scholars and sort of breaking down what they believed into its constituent principles and then showing how those principles did not in fact fit together. But, like the cynics, they didn't have anything to put in its place, and the skeptics were often criticized as being godless, um, as having no system to replace their sort of emptiness with. Um, So... Of these four systems, certainly the Stoics and the Ske- the Skeptics were the most prevalent in ancient Roman society. Um, the ancient Roman public and the ancient Roman pol- politicians tended to be Stoics, while scholars tended to err towards the side of the skeptics and the academics. Um, but as Christianity was rising and as Rome was falling apart over the next several centuries, um, this very much got conflated, and these philosophies, Philosophical schools sort of came back together again, um, forming this new sort of philosophy known as Neoplatonism. Um, And unlike the schools before them, Neoplatonists were interested in sort of combining the existing schools of thought rather than sort of fracturing further. Um, This is a time of great unrest. The schools are very much threatened by, you know, invasion from outside or the dissolution of the Roman Empire from inside. And as a result, there's more emphasis on, like, let's all get in the same boat and, you know, be academics rather than, you know, trying to articulate our differences and, you know, express the, the... Nuance of Plato's thought. Um, So the Neoplatonists very much adopted Plato but tried to synthesize. Aristotle and the different schools of thought that had crept up after Aristotle's death. So Neoplatonism is very much sort of like an embodiment of all of the philosophical ideas at the time. Um, They posit one single god like Plato did with the Demiurge and like the Christians do now and like the Zoroastrians do um, as they are picking up speed within the Roman Empire. Um, They posit that this one god has three characteristics much like the Christian trinity um, and that this god is sort of pantheistic, that it underlies the entire world, that we are god in a certain sense. Um, And these Neoplatonists had this whole elaborate, very abstract, very esoteric system to explain how all of the pieces of these various philosophical schools fit together. Um, And it became very prevalent, like to the point that christians and neoplatonists were getting together uh, because again like they're positing one god three forms like part of Neoplatonism was certainly influenced by christian thought at this point in time so it makes sense that the christians would sort of adopt neoplatonism as the foundation of their beliefs as well um and the primary person who is responsible for this synthesis is Saint Augustine of Hippo, um, who is one of the most important medieval philosophers. He marks the difference between ancient philosophy and medieval philosophy on the on the other hand, um, because he sort of stood right at the moment when everything was changing in Rome um, around four hundred and fifty uh, A.D. or C.E. Um, see. At the end of Augustine's life, he literally watched Rome fall. Like, not he was there when it happened, um, but he was alive and writing about it when it happened. Um, He was, you know, in his diocese of Hippo in North Africa. Um, In fact, many of the great scholars of Christianity um, and philosophy were North Africans due to the prominence of, like, the Alexandrian uh, library or museum, um, as well as, you know, a whole bunch of other stuff that's going on at the time. But Augustine of Hippo like, has a radical influence on Christian philosophy and theology. Um, he is the foundational thinker on which all of our medieval philosophers in this class and on all of Christian thought today is very much based. Um, like, the only school of Christian thought that really does not depend 100% on Augustine for its foundational principles is the Orthodox Church. Um, they very much had their own thing going on at this point. Like, the East and the Western Roman Empires did not have a whole lot in common ideologically. Um, but that's a whole nother conversation for a whole nother class. Um, what I want to stress is this transition. Um, In this time of ancient philosophy, the focus of many of these philosophers was on metaphysics. They were trying to understand how the world worked. Most of these philosophers were very interested in how God worked, like Plato talking about the Demiurge or the Neoplatonists sort of re-adopting it and incorporating it into their one God. Um... That, like much of this was like interacting with the Christian idea of God, the pagan ideas of God, um, the Zoroastrian idea of God. Like there was all of this discussion of what the universe looked like, how did it work? Um, but it was also not guided by any one particular religion. It was primarily syncretistic, trying to sort of look at all of the different schools of thought that were very evident in Rome, like this cosmopolitan you know, world of many different competing ideas and religions and ways of thinking, and synthesizing them all together into one system that could fit everything. Um, And while, you know, like, there are definitely ups and downs of this syncretistic idea in ancient philosophy, like Plato was not so much a syncretist, um, but, and Aristotle was very much opposed to Plato's ideas in many ways, Um, but the sort of dominant thinking in this time was how do you, how do you accommodate all of the different sort of schemes of thought that are coming in at this point and even Plato is doing that like Plato is trying to work with the other philosophers of the time he's dealing with Euclid the mathematician he's dealing with Parmenides the philosopher before him Um, he's trying to synthesize them with Socrates Aristotle is doing the same thing Democritus and Plato all of these thinkers he's trying to sort of work into one consistent system Um, but Again, it's many different schools of thought, and none of them are indebted to any single one religion or philosophical school. This is what changes in medieval philosophy. Like, from Augustine forward, the primary mode of thought in philosophical discussion and philosophical inquiry is trying to unify your religious perspective with your understanding of the great secular philosophers, specifically Plato and Aristotle. Plato and Aristotle represent all secular wisdom at that time. The closest thing that we have to science at this point is what Plato and Aristotle have written. Um, So most of the philosophers going forward from the fall of the Roman Empire around 450 um, are specifically trying to speak to how does my religion fit with the secular understanding of the world prevalent at the time. And This is not just true for Christianity but for Judaism and for Islam as well. as Islam is becoming more and more prevalent in the 7th and 8th centuries, as it's sweeping through North Africa and taking over Spain, as it is threatening the Byzantine Empire in the east, um, it is very much sort of Doing the philosophical work that Plato and Aristotle and the ancients were doing before them. In fact, when we talk about like the Dark Ages as being the period from, let's say, the fall of Rome to about 1000 A.D., um, this period of like great upheaval and Rome and Western Europe being in a lot of chaos, um, a lot of like assassinations and uh, no clear leadership being being at stake. We call this the Dark Ages, but at the same time as this is happening, like, the Byzantine Empire is undergoing profound, like, accomplishments. They're having their golden age in the 6th and 7th centuries, um, and Islam is coming to its own golden age in the 8th and 9th. They're doing tons of stuff with science and with reasoning and with philosophy. Um, like, some the is, accomplishments of the Islamic scientists are frequently underrated in any study of Western civilization. Um, and I sort of want to push back against that because, you know, some of that stuff is amazing. Um, they were building, like... Mechanical clocks that were accurate to a really impressive degree long before Europe was ever doing anything like that. They were building rudimentary telescopes that wouldn't be improved upon until Galileo in the 16th century. Like, they were doing a lot of awesome stuff, and importantly, they were keeping the fires burning as far as philosophy was concerned. Um, See, in the West, like, with the fall of Rome and the invasion of the barbarians, the Ostrogoths and the Visigoths and the Huns and the Franks, much of the West's knowledge had been destroyed or lost. And as a result, throughout most of the medieval period, um, the popes and the monks and the other scholars at the time, um, who were mostly P.S. monks, um, they had lost access to the original works of Plato and Aristotle. They, for the most part, couldn't even read ancient Greek. Um, all they had was Latin translation. And um, and as a result, like they were working with those couple of Platonic dialogues like the Timaeus, which had been preserved, virtually nothing of Aristotle except what had survived through other writers like Boetius, um, and they were basically just like doing what they could to, to take their fragmentary, fragmentary knowledge of philosophy and fit it with the, the teachings of religion, um, the Bible, the uh, tradition of the popes, and the Catholic Church at this time um but islam had kept all of their t- copies of Uh, Plato and Aristotle. The Byzantine Empire had theirs, um, but Islam, as they are sweeping through northern Africa, they capture a lot of major libraries and they preserve this information. Um, To the point that in the 11th century, as, you know, the western European world is reconquering Spain, the Reconquista, um, and like pushing the Muslims out of Spain back into Africa, um, they're finding all of these libraries and finding all of this wisdom and all of this academic scholarship. All of the philosophers that they had been missing for literally centuries at this point, they're suddenly rediscovering. And as they rediscover it, they're reintroducing it to the scholarly world at large, albeit slowly. Um, keep in mind that in order to do any scholarship at this point in time, it had to be done by hand. Um, there were no printing presses. That was a 15th century invention. Um, and as a result, like if you wanted a copy of the Bible, then that means that you had that meant that you had like a dozen monks working on it for a month or more in order to get the finished product. Um, It was a very difficult thing to pull off um, and very time-consuming especially. Um, So, you know, once the copies of Aristotle in the original Greek or in Arabic um, have been discovered in Spain. It's going to take two, three hundred years for them to to get translated, to get disseminated to the different monasteries, and for people to start writing about them. Um, But this is ultimately what will happen. Like it takes time, but this is what's going on. At this point, the medieval world has been primarily, at least the medieval European world. I should stress again. Like Islam is obviously doing its own thing. The Byzantine Empire has its You know, scholarship going on. Judaism has its scholars trying to fit philosophy with Judaism. Um, But in the West, uh, in like Christendom in Western Europe at this point, um, this is where they're finally rediscovering Plato and Aristotle and starting to try and fit the new findings with the old texts. Um, this is very much where Thomas Aquinas comes in. Like, Thomas Aquinas is the flagship philosopher, uh, and we're talking like 13th, 14th century at this point, um, who takes the n- recently translated texts of Aristotle and the work of the uh, Muslim philosophers at this point and tries to build a coherent system largely apart from Augustinian theology um, on the basis of these new findings and the Bible. Um But before that, we have to talk about Anselm. Um, So Anselm is an 11th century British philosopher of all things. He is Anselm of Canterbury. He was in fact the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 11th century, Um, late 11th century, like early 11th century. It was somebody else. Um, And he was one of the great medieval philosophers before the Scholastic movement, which Aquinas was a part of. Um, And Anselm sort of heralds all of the big changes that are going to happen in the next couple centuries of medieval philosophy. Um, He is very interested In the intersection between rationality and faith, Um, the teachings of like reason and the teachings of the Bible, and this is a pretty consistent issue amongst medieval philosophers. They're not entirely sure how much weight. To give to, on the one hand, reason and philosophy versus what the church teaches by way of faith. Um, and this is the issue of reason versus revelation, as it is usually articulated. In fact, both Anselm and Aquinas will spend a decent amount of time talking about that intersection, trying to navigate between the sort of two extremes of rationality without faith and faith without rationality. Um, and Anselm really pushes this forward. His position is actually really radical for the medieval scholars at this point. Um, so, if you look at the Proslogion, chapters 2 to 7, which I assigned for today on pages 432 to 434 of the textbook, um, Anselm makes one of the most lasting and influential arguments for the existence of God in the history of philosophy. Um, this is what's known as the ontological argument. So if you look at chapter two, you can see how he articulates it. Um, notice first that he is invoking God on this. He the, like this whole writing, the proslogion, is written as a prayer. Therefore, Lord, you who grant understanding to faith, grant that insofar as you know it is useful for me, I may understand that you exist as we believe you exist and that you are what you believe what we believe you to be. Notice that he is using his faith, petitioning God in his prayer to give him understanding. Um, Given his faith, he wants reason to be able to back it up. He doesn't think that there's a contrast between the two of them, which I want to stress here. Um, Again, This is something that is very typical of a lot of medieval theology, although it's not across the board. Like, there are lots of medieval theologians who are going to push back against this. We're going to argue that reason actually can't accomplish these things, and Revelation should be our sole guide for understanding the world and understanding God. But I want to stress that our contemporary way of looking at things, where science is opposed to religion is a fairly new development, like since Descartes, since in all likelihood Kant and Hegel and uh, the 19th century in general. um, At this point in time in the 11th century, Anselm absolutely believes that reason and revelation are compatible, that there is no conflict between what you believe by faith and what you believe by reason. So look at his argument here. Now we believe that you are something that, than which nothing greater can be thought. This is his understanding of who God is, a being than which no greater being can be thought. And this definition is extremely important to Anselm's argument here. Um, so he continues, So can it be that no such being exists, since the fool has said in his heart there is no God? But when this same fool hears me say something than which nothing greater can be thought, he surely understands what he hears, and what he understands exists in his understanding, even if he does not understand that it exists in reality. So let's back up, because this is kind of super important. What he is saying here is, if you can understand the concept of being than which no greater being can be thought, i.e. the greatest being thinkable, Um, that's all that he is asking at this point. Consider the possibility of a being than which no greater can be thought. The greatest thinkable being. And even if this fool who says that there is no God argues that there is no God, he can still understand the idea. The greatest thinkable being. For it is one thing for an object to exist in the understanding, and quite another to understand that the object exists in reality. When a painter, for example, thinks out in advance what he is going to paint, he has it in his understanding, but he does not yet understand that it exists, since he has not yet painted it. But once he has painted it, he ha- he both has it in his understanding and understands that it exists, because he has now painted it. What he is saying is the fool can believe that a greatest being Namely, we're getting to God. Um, Like, he knows what that being is, but he can't understand that it exists. Like, you can think of what God would be like without believing that God exists. Like, presumably atheists do this all the time. They know what Christians are talking about when they say God, but they don't believe that that God exists. This poses no contradiction. Or does it? Um, and some goes on so even the fool must admit that something than which nothing greater can be thought exists at least in his understanding since he understands this when he hears it and whatever is understood exists in the understanding even an atheist has to admit that the idea of God exists even if they don't believe in it even if like don't they think Christians are ridiculous they have to consider the they have to admit um, that God, exists in the understanding that this idea of god must exist this idea of a being than which no greater can be thought the idea of a greatest thinkable being and surely that than which a greater cannot be thought cannot exist only in the understanding this is where anselm pulls the rug out from under you Surely that than which a greater cannot be thought cannot exist only in the understanding, for if it exists only in the understanding, it can be thought to exist in reality as well, which is greater. So if that than which a greater cannot be thought exists only in the understanding, then that than which a greater cannot be thought is that than which a greater can be thought. But that is clearly impossible. Therefore, there is no doubt that something than which a greater cannot be thought exists both in the understanding and in reality. Make sense? Good. I'm glad. Let's move on. No. So, I realize that this is super confusing. Like, let me break it down for you. If you are trying to think of the greatest thinkable being, the being than which no greater can be thought, and you think that this being does not exist then you can, in theory, imagine the same being with all of the same perfections, all of the same greatness, all of the same ideal-like qualities, but it also does exist. And at the end of the day, if there is a being that has all those qualities and doesn't exist in reality, only in the understanding, and a being that has all of those same qualities and does exist in both the understanding and in reality, then the only one of those two that can properly call the greatest being thinkable is the one that exists in both the understanding and reality. Take it like this. If I have an imaginary hundred dollar bill it's not worth much. If I have a real $100 bill, it's worth $100. Which of the two would you prefer, the imaginary $100 bill or the real $100 bill? Um, If you prefer the real $100 bill, the one that can actually buy stuff, then in theory the real $100 bill is better than the imaginary $100 bill. Likewise, a god that has all the qualities of god but only exists in the understanding not in reality is inferior to a god that has all the qualities of god and does exist in both understanding and reality therefore to properly be called the greatest thinkable being it has to exist actually not just in the understanding if it only existed in the understanding, it wouldn't be the greatest thinkable being. It would have this obvious inferiority, this obvious flaw. Therefore, it is not the greatest thing. And therefore, you have to abandon it. It is not true. Um, Now, this doesn't apply across the board. Like, you can't imagine, like, the perfect destination spot, and therefore it must exist. Rather, this only applies to God, because it can only be... It can only refer to a being with all of the virtues, all of the perfections, the greatest possible being. Um, the perfect, des- perfect vacation destination might be, you know, wrong simply because it does exist. Um, like, it might be weakened by the fact that it, in fact, exists. But with God, that's not the case. Um, its reality follows from its nature. If we understand to be god to be the greatest thinkable being then he must necessarily exist rationality demands it it would be a contradiction to think anything else this is essentially what anselm is arguing and this is what he calls the ontological argument because it is basically an argument that god's being is necessary is necessary um, that it follows necessarily from his nature God's nature is perfection, therefore God must exist, because if he didn't exist, it would be an imperfection. I hope that that makes sense, because we do in fact have to move on. Um, you'll also notice that Aquinas like continues this argument, he defends it a couple of times, he presents the case that it is not possible... Um, For you to think that God does not exist if you understand what God actually is. Um, This is important because Aquinas is going to talk about this shortly as well. Um, He also points out the arguments that are being made in medieval philosophy at this point about God's omnipotence. Um, You'll remember that when I talked about God in the philosophy lecture on Christianity and the Bible and Exodus... Um, that I mentioned that like one of the major characteristics that we associate with God is his omnipotence, the fact that he is all-powerful, that he can do whatever he wants. Um, it didn't take a whole lot of time for philosophers to start poking holes in this idea. Um, waggish philosophers who were like, well, if God's so powerful, if he can do whatever he wants, then can God make a rock so big that even God can't pick it up? <laughs> the idea being that, of course, like, If God is all-powerful, he should be able to do that. He should be able to create a rock so big that he can't pick it up. But if God is all-powerful, he should also be able to pick up the rock. Um, In that sense, Anselm has to confront the idea of, are there things that God cannot do? And you'll notice in chapter 7, he deliberately addresses this. God does not, perhaps cannot, sin. In fact, Anselm's position is that he cannot sin. Um, But this is no like argument against his omnipotence the fact that god cannot lie is not a weakness of god it is actually a strength of god um sin like lying or killing or doing bad things are all a deficiency the fact that we can do it is an indication of our weakness not our strength the fact that we can lie indicates that we are bad people not good people We are less powerful because we are not limited to the truth, in short. But we're going to come back to this idea. So let's table it for the moment. Because when we get to the simplicity of God, it will become extremely important. Um, Now, the next thinker and thought that I want to sort of address is Aquinas's treatment of the same subject. Aquinas is going to be the main guy that we're talking about in this section of the class. Like he is our big medieval philosopher um, as we are talking about medieval philosophy. Um, And part of the reason is because he is, I would say, the most important medieval philosopher with the possible exception of Augustine. Um, Like, we're not going to read Augustine in here, he doesn't really fit into the curriculum all that well, and I'm a huge fan of Aquinas, so you're stuck with Aquinas! Um, But Aquinas comes considerably after Anselm of Canterbury, which means that he also knows Anselm's ontological argument, and most of Anselm's, like, uh, argumentation leading up to that argument. Um, And he will directly confront it here. But the other thing to keep in mind is that Aquinas is the product of this new movement in medieval thought, trying to incorporate Aristotle into the teachings of Augustine and the other great Christian philosophers and theologians of the time. Um, Like, Aquinas is basically building a whole new philosophical system in the Summa Theologica. Um, And as much as we get, like, you know, 30 pages of the Summa here, which is fine... I want to stress that the Summa Theologica is this immense work of, like, thousands of pages um, that Aquinas wrote, and is to this day, like, the definitive theological system underlying Catholicism. Um, like, most of what you find in the Catechism is indebted to Aquinas, and most of the hardline um, theological ideas prevalent in the Catholic Church today are those of Aquinas. Um, like, even in the 20th century, a big new movement of philosophers at the turn of the century and like up in the early half of the century was devoted to sort of updating Thomism um to incorporate existential ideas and other major ideas of the 20th century Aquinas has like he's waned in popularity immediately after his death but he is very much coming into his own again and there are a lot of Thomists out there um people have been finding significant meaning in his philosophy for quite a long time and he is a big deal. Um, Part of what makes him such a big deal is that he is also, like Anselm, a huge proponent of the fusion between philosophy and theology, reason and revelation. Um, If anything, he goes even farther than Anselm. Uh, We'll talk more about exactly what that relationship looks like in the next lecture, if there is going to be a next lecture, because my two classes are doing this a little bit differently, so some of you will get another Aquinas lecture and some of you will not get another Aquinas lecture, though I'm sure both of you will have access to it if you want to track it down, Um, just most of you will, or some of you will not be required to listen to it. At any rate, Aquinas is trying to make these things fit together. His argument is basically going to boil down to um, we have to use reason to understand as much of the world as we possibly can, but that isn't going to give us all the information we necessarily need. That we have to rely on God and revelation for. Um, And you can see this even as early as in question two, um, in his discussion of the existence of God here in our textbook. So, you'll notice that in question two on the existence of God, he is essentially asking three questions. Um, Article one, is the existence of God self evident? Article two, can it be demonstrated that God exists? And article three, does God actually exist? Um, and I want to break these down pr- pretty closely, um, like not as closely as we did with Socrates and and the Euthyphro, um, but fairly closely all the same, because this is one of the most important sections and one of the most important books in all of medieval philosophy. Um, and it is especially pertinent to our class as we are asking the question, what is God like? What is his nature and does he exist? Um, So you'll notice in the first article, whether the existence of God is self-evident, his objections are deliberately pointed to this question. Um, How much are we actually allowed to know about God? So in Objection 1, he says, It seems that the existence of God is self-evident, for those things are said to be self-evident to us, the knowledge of which exists naturally in us, as we can see in regards to first principles. But as Damascene says, John Damascene, the knowledge of God is naturally implanted in all, therefore the existence of God is self-evident. Um, This is backed up by biblical teaching, and Aquinas will confront that a little bit further on. Um, Specifically, there's this idea in the Bible known as natural revelation. Um, Paul argues that in, I believe, Romans chapter 1, that God has, like manifested himself in creation. All you need to do is look at a tree and see that there's a guiding hand at the wheel of the universe. Um, The universe, at least as we have it, is orderly. Everything is in its proper place. Um, Nature does not do things idly, and therefore this is evidence that God exists. Damascene is pointing to something similar. Um, God gives us all the evidence we need that he exists, and therefore his existence is self-evident, Damascene argues. Um, but notice that we're not done. Um, objection two further, those things are said to be self evident which are known as soon as the terms are known, which the philosopher says is true of the first principles of demonstration. Um, when Aquinas refers to the capital P philosopher, he's referring to Aristotle. Like for him, that's the big philosopher. Um, he will also refer occasionally to the commentator. Um, that, I believe, is Averroes. Um, who is an Islamic commentator on Aristotle and who Aquinas also respects a great deal. Um, and then I think he's got another name for Avicenna when Avicenna comes up. Um, but both of those thinkers, um, Avaros and Avicenna or Ibn Sina, um, they are both major Islamic philosophers, and Aquinas is getting his understanding of Aristotle through their Arabic translations of the Greek Aristotle texts. Um, so to him, all three of them are very important, and he will interact with them, which makes the Summa Theologica super important also because it's a dialogue between East and West, one of our first examples of like actual like intersectionalism in philosophy, which is awesome. Anyway, continuing his objection to, Thus, when the nature of a whole and of a part is known, it is at once recognized that every whole is greater than its part. But as soon as the signification of the name God is understood, it is at once seen that God exists. For by this name is signified that thing than which nothing greater can be conceived. But that which exists actually and mentally is greater than that which exists only mentally. Therefore, since as soon as the name God is understood, it exists mentally, it also follows that it exists actually. He is literally quoting word for word Anselm's argument here, and Anselm's definition. He is presenting Anselm's case. But notice that he is presenting it as an objection to his own ideas. Because at the end of the day, when you proceed to on the contrary and I answer that, he's going to argue that God isn't self-evident, that Anselm was wrong. Um, And this is something you should be conscious of in most of our philosophers. Like, we haven't encountered it yet because most of our philosophers are coming from wildly different schools and wildly different ideas and wildly different regions of the world. But this is our first instance of someone literally and directly confronting the philosophical ideas of one of our other thinkers in the body of the text. Um, Like Aquinas will frequently confront Plato and either agree or disagree with him. Here he is explicitly confronting Anselm and rejecting what Anselm says. So notice in I answer that the way that Aquinas does this is not by like saying Anselm is just wrong, but rather by making a clarification. A thing can be self-evident in either of two ways. On the one hand, self-evident in itself, though not to us. On the other, self-evident in itself and to us. This is one of Aquinas' favorite philosophical moves. When he sees that there is a huge debate going on in the philosophical circles, one of the first things he is likely to do is try and break down the debate into constituent positions. To break down the language and prevent equivocation. When we talk about what is self-evident, we mean either self-evident in the sense that Anselm means it, where it is self-evident and therefore it is self-evident to us and to everyone else, but also in the sense that Aquinas specifies here. It can be self-evident logically and not self-evident to us. So, as he will go on to argue... If, however, there are some to whom the essence of the predicate and subject is unknown, the proposition will be self-evident in itself, but not to those who do not know the meaning of the predicate and subject of the proposition. Um, This is on page 468, first column, by the way, if you're following in the textbook. What he is stressing here is Anselm is right. God's existence necessarily follows from God's nature, But we don't know what God's nature is, or at least we can only extrapolate what God's nature is, so it is not therefore self-evident. If you don't understand who God is, and let's be perfectly honest, we are feeble-minded human beings, there is no way that we can fully grasp what God actually is, then it is not self-evident in that sense. So notice the reply to Objection 2, where he's deliberately confronting Anselm here. Um, Perhaps not everyone who hears this name God understands it to signify something than which nothing greater can be thought, seeing that some have believed God to be a body. Yet granted that everyone understands that by this name God is signified something than which nothing greater can be thought, nevertheless, it does not therefore follow that he understands that which the name signifies exists actually, but only that it exists mentally. Nor can it be argued that it actually exists unless it be admitted that there actually exists something in which nothing greater can be thought and this precisely is not admitted by those who hold that god does not exist in short his first argument against anselm is breaking down what is self-evident just because it's self-evident in itself doesn't mean it is self-evident to us if we do not understand the terms we do not understand it as is self-evident argument one against anselm but here he presents a second he goes a step further and says Anselm is also just flat out wrong. This argument doesn't actually make sense. Um, because if the if we think that something is self-evident mentally, but also self-evident actually, it is still only in our minds that that takes place. And numerous other philosopher, uh, philosophers will argue the same way. If the argument that Anselm made rang hollow to you, this is probably why. Um... Aquinas is basically saying that like in the imaginary framework that Anselm is developing, um, this thing than which nothing greater can be thought, um, it only ever exists in our mind and has no application to the real world. Just because we think something must exist doesn't mean it must necessarily exist, Um, but Again, I realize that this is really abstract, and we have to keep moving because there's so much other important stuff, and I'm already running out of time here. Um, now, his second argument, whether it can be demonstrated that God exists, this is also a big question that Aquinas has to deal with. Um, you'll notice that like his argument against the Damascene and several other thinkers that we're going to confront in this class, um, many are basically saying that God is only an article of faith, that you cannot prove that God exists. Especially, you'll find Hume making a very similar argument here. So notice his objections. Objection 1, it seems that the existence of God cannot be demonstrated, for it is an article of faith that God exists. But what is of faith cannot be demonstrated, because a demonstration produces scientific knowledge, whereas faith is of the unseen, as is clear from the Apostle. Therefore, it cannot be demonstrated that God exists. Um, Objection two, essence is the middle term of demonstration, but we cannot know in what God's essence consists, solely in what it does not consist, as Damascene says. Therefore, we cannot demonstrate that God exists. And objection three, further, if the existence of God were demonstrated, this could only be from his effects, but his effects are not proportioned to him. Since he is infinite and his effects are infinite, and between the finite and infinite, there is no proportion. Um... In short, Objection 1 is basically saying that if God is a faith thing, he can't also be a reason thing. Therefore, you've got to take God on faith, and there is no way to prove that God exists. But he argues against this. And again, I want to stress, Aquinas doesn't see a problem, a contradiction between faith and reason. Um, In Objection 2, he is once again sort of pointing back to John Damascene. And one of the key philosophical ideas that Damascene talks about, which Aquinas is really sympathetic to in all honesty, is this idea that we can only talk about God in terms of what God is not. Um, C.S. Lewis actually makes a really good sort of example of how this works. He says, imagine that you are a clam. Like as a clam hanging out in the ocean, you do not have very much power or influence or ability to even detect what is going on around you. You have no eyes, you have no hands, you do get some basic sensation, like you can detect changes in the currents around you, which basically allows you to like open your shell or close it if there is a predator nearby. Like that's literally all of your power in the world. But imagine that you are a clam and that some human being comes up to your tide pool Pulls you out of the water, gives you a good hard look, and then deposits you back in the water. You have now had a miraculous experience, at least as far as clams go. So naturally all of your clam friends who are going to come up to you and say, dude, what just happened? Um, And you'll be like, I think I saw God. At which point the clams are going to question you. What was God like? Did he have a hard outer shell? And you will say, no, he did not have a hard outer shell. Did he have a soft gelatinous underbelly that allows you to detect currents? And you will say, no, he did not have that. Um, You cannot, in fact, approach what God was like. You'll be like, he he had, it wasn't a shell because it was softer than a shell, but, but it wasn't like as soft as my underbelly. Um, like, you will only be able to talk about in the things that you experienced in terms of what is different from what you are used to experiencing. God, therefore, can only be understood negatively. He is not evil in the sense that we are evil. He is not imperfect in the sense that we are imperfect. He does not have limitations to his thought the way that there are limitations to ours. Nor does he have limitations to his power the way that there are limitations to ours. Um, All of the things that constrain us are not constraining God. That's virtually all that we can say about God. And therefore, we can only understand him negatively and therefore we cannot demonstrate that he exists. This is an idea that Aquinas is going to be confronting a lot in his thought, and again, if you listen to the next lecture, we will talk about it explicitly, but for now we have to table it because we have to keep moving. Um, The third objection, the idea that his effects are not proportioned to him, is actually what we're going to find in Hume, really hardcore in the dialogues concerning natural religion. Um, What Aquinas is basically anticipating here is this idea that we can only understand God by what we see in the world, which is actually a big difference and a huge move away from Augustine and his platonic underpinnings. Um, It is a huge move away from Anselm and his idea that you can understand and grasp God through rationality alone. Um, Instead, what what uh Aquinas is suggesting is that we have to look at the world to understand who God is um we have to use our direct experience this is typically Aristotelian like Aristotle was all about using your experience to understand the world um and in fact like Aquinas's model for proving that God exists is basically cribbed directly from Aristotle's metaphysics um But what he is saying is since we have only the world, our experience to use as evidence of God's existence, we have to recognize that it is woefully insufficient. Um, We cannot extrapolate to God, an infinite being, using our finite experience because God is so much bigger and so much categorically more important um, than we are. As a result... We can't demonstrate the existence of God. But Aquinas argues against all of these objections. I answer that demonstration can be made in two ways. One is through the cause, and is called propter quid, and this is to argue from what is prior absolutely. The other is through the effect, and is called the demonstration kia, and this is to argue from what is prior relatively only to us. When an effect is better known to us than its cause, from the effect we proceed to the knowledge of the cause. In short, Aquinas is saying we are not using the typical mode of of understanding the universe here. Typically, in an Anselmian situation where we understand the causes, we can extrapolate the effects through the causes. I drop my pen, it falls to the ground. However, when we do not fully understand the causes involved, as is the case with God, we have to extrapolate the essence and the character of the being we're talking about from the things that that being does. I.e., if I see a pen lying on the floor but don't have never seen who dropped it, I can basically I or or get the idea that someone probably dropped it at some point because pens don't just, like, materialize out of the floor. Um, I have to extrapolate the cause from the effect that I see. And the same is true of God in this case. But importantly for Aquinas, arguing against his objections, this is, first off, not an article of faith. Like, being able to argue God's existence based on the effects that we see in the world is not a faith thing. It's something before even faith is concerned. Um, Like, if we do not use any of our experience, we cannot get information from the Bible because that, you know, we listen to it or read it using our experience. And therefore, like, we have to trust our senses in order to get even to believing that, like, the Bible exists. So that's pre-faith in every sense. But to that second objection, that God is negative, he is basically saying, well, to both the second and third objections, that God is negative and that, like, his effects are not proportional to who God is, he's saying it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, whether God is negative or whether he is, like, impossibly infinite, either way, we have enough information given the world around us to extrapolate God's existence, if not God's nature. And that's the key distinction here for Aquinas. We can know that there is a god based on our experience, but we can't know what that god is like based solely on our experience. In fact, when we get to the simplicity of God, what he will emphasize is exactly those Damascenian negative qualities. Once we know that God exists, because he has to, because of these basic like relations between cause and effect, we can then go to what God is not, and once we know what God is not, then we have a better idea of what God actually is. But we'll get back to that. The third article is the most important. Does God actually exist? And notice just this whole structure here. Like, top to bottom, there are only two objections, rather than the usual three that Aquinas tends to dig up, or more in some cases, Um, and his argument structure in, like, these five different ways to prove God's existence. Not arguments, mind you. There is only one argument, but there are five ways to use it. Um, And I want to break all of this down in the time that is left. Um, So objection one, you'll notice, he says it seems that God does not exist because if one of two contraries be infinite, the other would be altogether destroyed. But the name God means that he is infinite goodness. If therefore God existed, there would be no evil discoverable, but there is evil in the world. Therefore God does not exist. This is... The famous problem of evil, articulated extremely efficiently by Aquinas, as we should come to expect from him. Um, And this is probably the single most potent argument against the existence of God that we will find in all of philosophy, in all of history, in all of theology, like this is it. Um, The argument basically says, if God's so good, and if God's so powerful, why is there evil? If there is evil, then that proves that there is not a perfectly good, perfectly powerful God in existence. Um, To break this down even further, like using our basic argument structure that we talked about at the very beginning of class, premise one, God is omnipotent, God is all-powerful, or at least God is powerful enough that he can do what he wills in the world and we can't do anything about it. Premise two, God is good, God is all good, God will tolerate no evil. But premise three is that evil exists. And this proposes a huge contradiction. If, in fact, God is all powerful and all good, he would not allow evil to exist. Therefore, since evil exists, God does not. God cannot exist or he would have eradicated evil altogether. This is what the basic assumption of the problem of evil is and it is damn compelling. Um, Like, it is the single best argument in the atheist's arsenal against theism generally. If there's a good God, why does he let evil exist? That's basically what it comes down to. If God is so powerful, and if God is so good, why is there evil? The second objection that Aquinas presents, because we will get back to his address to the first objection momentarily is the other argument that you hear the most often, namely, why believe in a god at all? This is the argument from materialism, or from naturalism, the idea that the notion of god is superfluous. And this is basically the same argument that Stephen Hawking made a mere like 20 or 30 years ago. It is superfluous to suppose that what can be accounted for by a few principles has been produced by many. But it seems that everything we see in the world can be accounted for by other principles, supposing God did not exist. For all natural things can be reduced to one principle, which is nature, and all voluntary things can be reduced to one principle, which is human reason or will. There is no no need to suppose God's existence. As Stephen Hawking said in his own words... There is no need to believe in God anymore. We have explained the causes of the universe sufficiently that no need to, like, point to a God is necessary. And notice that, like, again, Hawking isn't saying anything new at this point. Aquinas is suggesting the same argument, like, 700 years in advance of Hawking, or 600 and change. Um... These are basically the only two arguments that get mustered to argue against God's existence. They're powerful arguments, but this is really it. Like, I defy you to think of a third argument against the existence of God that doesn't fall into the category of either the world is evil, so therefore God can't exist, or we don't need to believe in God because we have a natural explanation for everything that we see. Like, that's it. If you can come up with something else, I am welcome to the idea, but I've been teaching this a while and no students have successfully done it. It always either boils down to the world is evil, therefore a good god can't exist, or the world is a sufficient explanation for itself. We do not need to demonstrate that god exists. So as much as, like, Anselm seems to be doing this, the arguments of uh, atheists a disservice, like, again, this is as good as it gets... I have yet to see a better argument than the ones that Aquinas is entertaining here. Um, Now, his ultimate argument is, obviously, that God does in fact exist. But the structure of his argument is what's especially important here. What does he say and what does he not say? Um, Now, I'm not going to, like, go over every single one of these in great detail, but I do want to look at the first one, because it is the most famous and the most important and arguably the most compelling, um, and then sort of apply how that logic works in the other four cases. So, the first and more manifest way is the argument for motion. It is certain and evident to our senses that in the world some things are in motion. Stuff moves. That's literally all he's saying here. Now whatever is moved is moved by another, for nothing can be moved except it is in potentiality to that towards which it is moved, whereas a thing moves in as much as it is in act or actuality. For motion is nothing else in the production of something from potentiality to actuality. Stuff that moves is moved by other stuff, in short. Don't get snowed by all the potentiality, actuality language that basically just means that like if I have a car and it is here it is could potentially be somewhere else and then I can like start the car and get it to move there but importantly I have to start the car I have to move the thing I who can move has to move this other thing and the same is true for inanimate objects as well like if I poke a billiard ball with a cue stick the ball will communicate its motion to another ball The first moving thing will communicate motion to the unmoving thing, and that's how it starts moving. An object at rest tends to stay at rest, an object in motion will communicate that motion to that object, but it cannot just start moving spontaneously. That's not how these things work. Thus, that which is actually hot as fire makes wood which is potentially hot to be actually hot and thereby moves and changes it. Now it is not possible that the same thing should be at once in actuality and potentiality in the same respect, but only in different respects. For what is actually hot cannot simultaneously be potentially hot, but it is simultaneously potentially cold. It is therefore impossible that in the same respect and in the same way, a thing should be both mover and moved. That is, that it should move itself. All things are moved by something else. Therefore, whatever is moved must be moved by another. If that by which it is moved be itself moved, then this also must needs be moved by another and that by another again. The cue ball is moved, or the eight ball is moved by the cue ball, is moved by my cue stick, which is moved by me. I am moved by my parents, and so on and so forth, to their parents, and so on and all the way back. But, Aquinas stresses, this cannot go on to infinity, because then there would be no first mover, and consequently, no other mover, seeing that subsequent movers move only in as much as they are moved by the first mover, as the staff moves only because it is moved by the hand. There has to be a first mover. This cannot go on infinitely, or else there would be no first mover, and therefore there would be no motion. If things are moving, N.P.S. they are moving, they were put into motion by something else, but something must have started it. Therefore, it is necessary to arrive at a first mover, moved by no other, and this everyone understands to be God. This is the basic structure of all of Aquinas' arguments concerning the existence of God. All five ways proceed according to this model. Here is this thing that we observe. Motion in the first way, um, efficient causality, like creating stuff in the second one, um, possibility and necessity in the third way, um, gradation, like hotness and coldness, goodness and badness in the fourth way, and then telos, direction, purpose in the fifth way. Um, We observe that these forces are in the world. They must have come about in the world through a succession of causes. This thing moved that thing, this thing created that thing, this thing possesses gradation that is past this thing, Um, this thing is necessary, therefore this thing is necessary, and this thing has purpose and therefore it gives this thing purpose. This is... Always the case. Everything communicates its motion, its purpose, etc., to other objects. And therefore, everything that has these things gets it from somewhere else. In each of these cases, there can't be an infinite succession. There cannot be no necessary object that created necessary objects. There cannot be a moving, or there cannot be a situation where no moving thing produced something in motion. Like, that's just not how it works. And therefore, whatever the first one was, the first mover, the first efficient cause, the source of all uh, gradations and values, the first necessary thing, and the first intelligent, purposed thing we call God. But notice, it's just a placeholder name. We are not immediately jumping to the conclusion that it is the Christian God who is doing this stuff. This is purely a philosophical placeholder. We call the Prime Mover God. We call the Prime Purposer God. We call the Creator God. It is just a placeholder. We do not know anything about this thing that we call God as far, as far as Aquinas is concerned. We only know that it must exist. Something must have put the universe in motion. Something must have brought the universe about. Something must have given us purpose. Whatever that is, we call it God. That's the tentative position that Aquinas takes here. And notice that he continues it to the objections in his replies. Um his reply to Objection 1, that problem of evil that we talked about, since, he quotes Augustine directly on this one. Since God is the highest good, he would not allow any evil to exist in his works unless his omnipotence and goodness were such as to bring good even out of evil. This is part of the infinite goodness of God, Aquinas continues, that he should allow evil to exist and out of it produce good. Aquinas' argument here is that all evil things in the world produce greater good than they produce evil. And I realize this is a super controversial thing to say. This is not the way we usually answer this problem. Um, we were usually more of a fan of Descartes' approach where he will say that it's free will. Um, that causes the problem of evil to be resolved that like God made freedom because otherwise like good and evil don't have value and therefore freedom is what brings about evil say Adam and Eve and so on but Aquinas takes an even harder stance he is saying that every bad thing that has happened in the world has been the cause of a greater good thing that the good that bad people do outweighs the bad that they do we're going to come back to that as well when we talk about simplicity. His reply to Objection 2 is a little bit less powerful, though. Since nature works for a determinate end under the direction of a higher agent, whatever is done by nature must be traced back to God as to its first cause. So likewise, whatever is done voluntarily must be traced back to some higher cause other than human reason and will, since these can change and fail, for all things that are changeable and capable of defect must be traced back to an immovable and self-necessary first principle as has been shown. We tend to not agree with this, but that's also because we tend to think that those infinite regresses are totally possible in most cases. Or at the very least, like, we can trace them back to the Big Bang, which admittedly we can't go any further back then. But honestly, the trick with this is that I don't think Aquinas would necessarily have a problem, at least at this stage in his argument, with calling the Big Bang God. Like, remember, he has basically said that we don't have an idea of who God is at this point, except that God is the first mover, God is the first creator, God gives things purpose, God gives things necessity. That's basically what we contemporary materialists tend to say about the Big Bang. Like, it put everything into motion, it created stuff from what seemed like apparently nothing um it is the thing that gave necessity to the universe like it propelled the universe in predictable ways that's god as far as aquinas is concerned here there's no distinction between the two or rather this is a distinction without a difference um it is just a change in nomenclature If you want to say the Big Bang brought about the universe, that's equivalent to saying God brought about the universe. Now we're just arguing about titles, about words. Um, And Aquinas is going to stand on that. Um, So, yeah... Now the other thing I had you read was question three on the simplicity of God and we unfortunately do not have much time to talk about it seeing as I have spent an hour and 13 minutes already talking about everything that has come before and it's super important so obviously I couldn't very well just like ditch any one of this. Um, But what I want to stress about the simplicity of God is that this is Aquinas's next move in his conversation. Now that we have talked about what or the fact that God exists, we have shown from God's effects that God must be a thing, Aquinas' next move is to talk about God's nature. And remember, in this class, this is our focus. What is God's nature? And what Aquinas articulates here by basically stressing that all of the things that we know about God are the things that he is not, like Damascene has pointed out, he is not a body, he does not have potential, he does not, um, you know, have divisions or gradations. He is one simple thing. And this idea of simplicity of God is something very common in the medieval worldview and an incredibly important concept to the medievals and to philosophy in general. What Aquinas and Augustine before him and other medieval philosophers at this time are all essentially arguing is that God is simple. His goodness is simple. His qualities are all one quality. There is no differentiation in God. That's what Aquinas is driving home here. Um, God's goodness is the same as God's wisdom, is the same as God's justice, is the same as God's power, is the same as God's omniscience, is the same as God's omnipresence. It is not something differentiable. Now, we usually talk about these qualities as different things. We can say that person is wise, but not just. That person is just, but not good. That person is good, but not, you know, not very strong. That person is strong, but not very wise. And around and around we go. Um, We recognize that these are different qualities. But what Aquinas emphasizes here is that's our problem. We have confused the nature of the qualities. In God, the perfections are united. There is no distinction between wisdom, justice, goodness, power, um, etc. It is all one same thing. The fact that we call them by different names, the fact that we have different concepts for them is our mistake. We have broken them down because they are insufficient in us. If there was a being that was very, very good and very, very powerful and so on and so forth, they would reunite. Um, the fact that we see them separately is a failing on our part. And importantly for Aquinas, the key quality that sort of defines and ties all these together is existence. God's definitive characteristic for Aquinas is the fact that he exists. His existence is the same as his essence. His nature is the same as the fact that he exists for Aquinas. Because otherwise he could be separated and differentiated. You could take his existence away from his essence, you could posit his essence in something else. That's not how this works. Therefore Aquinas concludes God exists and because he perfectly exists, he is also perfect in every other way. And therefore what Aquinas is suggesting is that existence is itself perfection. Everything that exists participates in godliness in so far as it exists and this means that anyone who does anything evil who sins in the biblical conception of sinning or who does not live up to its potential in the sense of like the natural world this is all deficiency and this is all negative in the sense not of like bad but in the sense of having no reality the medievals frequently talk about this in this sense that what does not live up to its potential, what sins, what misses the mark, what lies or what hurts or what you know murders or what's, what is greedy, all of these things are elements and evidences of an object's deficiency. A thief does not have a positive nature as a thief. The thief is deficient defined by his deficiency, what he does not have. A person who lies is weaker than a person who tells the truth. They are more scared. They are more hurt. They are more unable to see the consequences of their actions. They are further from God. Now, nowadays in American society, we tend to think of good and evil as being on a spectrum, like a binary. It's like Jedi and Sith. Like, you choose a side and you lie to that side, and if you're all the way evil, then you might be really powerful, and if you're all the way good, then you might be really powerful, but most of us are in between somewhere. This is not how the medievals see the universe. This is definitely not how Aquinas sees the universe. They see there being one center of the universe, God. And that God is his goodness, is his virtue, is his wisdom, is his justice, and so on and so forth. You choosing to be evil is you choosing to distance yourself from that center of the universe to be farther away from God. And there are a whole bunch of ways that you can be farther away from God. Like you can imagine, you know, God as the center point in the universe and there are all of the directions in three dimensions to go away from that central point. Like you can go up, you can go down, you can go left, you can go right, you can go forward or backward, doesn't matter. The farther you are from God, the less real you are, the more compromised you are, the less existent you are. Um, You, when you sin, basically destroy yourself in a very real sense. You are less real when you sin than when you do good. Um, And goodness is defined by this reality. The more you are what you are, the more good you are. And the more good you are, the more you realize what you are. And I tied this back to the Tao Te Ching, how I talked about how the Tao is what it is and encourages us to be what we are. The same is true here. Like, I was definitely importing my simplicity of God argument because I knew that I wasn't going to have a whole lot of time to talk about it later. But this is something that Aquinas is very much stressing here. God is simple, and therefore we should aspire to be like God. That godliness is the defining quality of who we are as well, but the more we abandon it, the more we destroy ourselves, the more we become less real, the more we become less good and less godly. And importantly, this also solves one of the major dilemmas we've already run across in this class. If you remember way back to Plato several weeks ago, we talked about the Euthyphro dilemma. Is God good? or is something good because God says that it's good, or is it good because God says it's good? The convenience of the, our, the simplicity of God principle is that it conflates the two. God is the standard of goodness. Something is good because God says so because God is the standard. And something is um, good and therefore God declares it so because God is that goodness, that standard of goodness. Uh, remember that I said that at the time that like both were problematic in their own way. If something is good only because God says though, so, then God can change his mind. He can say, you know, go and murder people and now that's approved. And now all of a sudden the standard of goodness has changed. That's not true here because God is relentlessly good. That is who God is. God and his and the standard of goodness in the universe are one and the same thing. Likewise, if God is only saying that something is good because it is already good, then we don't need God. We can just look at the good thing. But again, that's not an issue here because God is the good thing. God is the goodness that he tells us to be. God is basically saying not be good, but be like me. Um, That's this philosophical understanding. And I should stress that this is different from the way that the Bible talks about it. This idea of simplicity of God is not a biblical concept. And in fact, most especially Protestants have been moving away from this idea. Um, Catholics still, for the most part, agree with this, though you might be hard-pressed to find a Catholic who knows what you're talking about if you bring up the simplicity of God with them. Um, typically, I'm talking about, like, high-level Catholic scholarship and the- theologians. They all know and that this is sort of a foundation of Catholic theology. But for the most part, like, your average Catholic layperson doesn't because, like, The whole process of being catechized is surprisingly insufficient about theology. Um, At any rate, this is very much this sort of crucial idea to philosophical Christianity, but not necessarily to biblical Christianity. Um, If anything, the Bible is more emphatic about the weird like scope of God. Um, the apparent contradictions in his nature rather than the unification of all of his qualities um, and sort of characteristics. Whether or not you want to prioritize the philosophical understanding, the omniscient, omnipotent, perfect, simple version of God, or the more biblical, differentiated version, that's for you and your religious leaders to decide. But what I want to emphasize is this is a huge idea and has a lot of pull throughout the medieval world and conveniently solves a lot of the problems that we've run into from the ancient and medieval perspectives. Um, It is crucial to understanding where Aquinas' understanding of God comes from, um, and it is the necessary link between Aquinas talking about God the placeholder and God the being of the Christian Bible with his nature and characteristics that we understand and address. So I don't know how, but somehow in an hour and 25 minutes I managed to talk about like all of this stuff. Um, I don't want to go any further though because that was a lot. Um, for those of you who are listening to more Aquinas, next week we will talk about Aquinas' actual perspective on rationality, um, his question one on the authority of scripture, and question three on the names of God and how exactly his reasoning works. Um, For those of you who are not getting another Aquinas lecture, we will move directly to Descartes, and you will get another history lecture, because we need to talk about the move from Aquinas in in medieval philosophy to modern philosophy in the post-Renaissance age. So, I hope that you enjoyed this lecture. I hope that it was illuminating. If you do have any questions about this, feel free to shoot them my way. I realize that Aquinas is like the most difficult and the most alien of our philosophers in this class and that his ideas are the most foreign to our own. Um, that's okay. If you're struggling with Aquinas, that's fine. Send me an email, talk about it with me, like Take advantage of the channels you have, like go online and see what research you can find about Aquinas. Um, He's a tough cookie to understand, but he is a very powerful voice, um, especially in the medieval world, and his um, perspective is very compelling, I think, more than we give him credit for. Like, we tend to write off the medievals as being backwards and, you know, stupid. This was not the case. Like, Aquinas is one of the most brilliant minds that philosophy has ever produced. Um, The fact that it is very much at odds with our own perspective on the universe probably just reflects how poorly thought out our own perspective tends to be, um, or really should just be all that much more valuable because he disagrees with us on so many points. He is absolutely the philosopher to challenge our ideas and our vision of the universe. So if you do not understand him, I encourage you to look deeper, um, but I will not penalize you for you know not getting every nuance of what he has to say. Um, anyway, like I said, I hope this was both enjoyable and informative. I hope it helped clear up um, any questions you had about Aquinas, but don't be shy about asking any questions that you still have or talking about it in the discussion boards. Um, I will come back soon with more Aquinas for you and more Descartes if that's the way that our class is going. Till then...